HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Dana Cowan. And today I am going to tell you about some incredible food that I ate in Charleston, as well as introduce you to two amazing women. One is an entrepreneur who created a business from a single organic saltine, and another is currently the general manager of a restaurant in Manhattan. Her resume reads like a places you got to try before you die list. But first, the food. Oh, my gosh. I was in Charleston this weekend for the Fab Conference, which was a group of women in the hospitality industry uh, learning and teaching uh, for two days. But, of course, I was there for the learning, yes, but I was really also there for the eating. When I landed, I went immediately to Chez Nu and had... Uh, lunch with Kristen Kish. That's one of her favorite places in Charleston, and I totally know why. First of all, the best seats in the house, if you're going to Charleston, you have to check it out. They're actually outside the house. They're on the porch, so just a table for two. Can you imagine how romantic that is? And it faces onto a beautiful, shady garden. The menu is tiny. It has two selections for appetizers, two for main, and two for dessert. So with two people, you can eat the entire thing. With four people, you get to have doubles. I was there for brunch, so I ordered light. I ordered an omelet. Now, the food there is pretty Frenchy, so this omelet came in absolute French perfection. It was that golden, sunny, yellow, smooth, and then inside, it was silky and eggy with fine herb. It is exactly the omelet that gets you jobs in restaurants. It's exactly the omelet that Jacques Pepin loves. And I loved it, too, for brunch. 
And then, of course, there was Kristen. Kristen had the pork chop. I just looked at that, and I'm like, this is a big southern midday meal seen through, you know, the perfect French lens. It was, it was a great way to start Charleston. I also went to Leon's Oyster Bar and had a frozen gin and tonic. If you have never had one of these, first of all, I suggest you try making it. It's like a snow cone with gin in a glass. Eat it with a spoon or sip it, a little cucumber on top. Uh, that's something that I'm going to try and steal from Leon's. Their oysters are great. Those I'm not going to try to steal. I, I once tried to you know, open oysters, and that was a, a terrible failure. And before I left Charleston, uh, I stopped by Little Jack's Tavern, and I had the Tavern Burger. This is my dream burger. Why? Because when you bite into the squishy bun, and then you get the hit of gooey American cheese, and then the crispy edge of the beef that is sticking out like a tongue from between the bread, and you bite down, the juice just runs down your arm. You're like a little kid. I just, I rolled my eyes in ecstasy and then demolished the entire thing and headed off to the airport. So that's just a quick little <laughs> my trip around Charleston. You've got to check out those places if you go. Um, okay, so now to turn to something I don't want to say it's more serious, but let's talk about the, the perfect bite. My first guest today is Nicole Bernard Dawes. She's the founder of Late July Snacks. You might know the brand because of their great non-GMO crackers or tortilla chips, or most recently, they introduced Cantina Dippers. The business was born after Nicole went in search of organic saltine crackers and didn't find any. It is this perfect story of, hey, I want something. I can't find it. Let me fill that niche. Nicole, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Hi, Dana. I'm so excited to be on your podcast today. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to, to learn more about your crackers, the, the whole line. I've been eating them since the very first introduction when I was at Food & Wine, and I remember thinking an organic saltine. And also, I love the Ritz crackers. Um, I thought those... What a great idea. And then I realized in reading your bio that you were the perfect person to create this because your mom ran a health food store in the 70s and your dad was the founder of uh, Cape Cod potato chips. So this is the love child. I mean, you, you actually have a food that is a love child of your, um, your parents. And I'm just curious, what did you learn from them that helped you launch this business? Well... I, I mean, I think that this is the only job that I was destined to do because when your mom had a health food store and your dad has a potato chip company, there's very few combinations that that can create besides exactly what I do. <laughs> but I honestly, one of the things that I loved about my upbringing was, I mean, my mom's health food store in the 70s was exactly what you think it was. I mean, the food was very, very natural and organic and very bland. And, um, I still have like a Pavlovian negative reaction when I see carob or tempeh. Honestly, I can't eat that to this day. You know, it was one of those things. In addition to having a health food store, we were also macrobiotic. Oh my gosh. And that, that sounds like, so, that sounds challenging. Yeah. I mean, it, 
and I really admire my mom for giving me that foundation and for teaching me how important it is to care about, you know, the foods you're creating, the foods you're making, and where they come from. But my dad starting Cape Cod potato chips in 1980 was probably the most liberating experience of my life because my dad really loved food. He actually put himself through college as a chef, or I mean, I think that might be exaggerating slightly, but as a cook on a fishing boat. Wow. And he, he, you know, he taught me that it was okay to go to 15 stores if that's what it took to make a meal to get the right ingredients. And just, you know, when we would go to new cities, I mean, you know, it was the joy of discovering new restaurants and how the foods were going to taste and where everything came from. So I really got that from my father. Um, So when you combine those two things, you know, one of my kind of early observations of having my mother's health food store was that I really liked conceptually what they were trying to accomplish, but as a child, it was very, very disappointing. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I, I would, pack, you know, my lunches would be, um, you know, never the envy of, like, any child around me. <laughs> so and it I wasn't exotic either, then, right? Like, there, you know, there had to be an, a better way. And as, you know, we evolved away from that slightly, you know, over the years, and uh, we weren't macrobiotic anymore, and my kind of eyes were opened, and I learned more. But I always knew I wanted to be in the food business. I mean, I loved being in my father's potato chip factory. I mean, it was probably my happy, happiest place. So did you have a job there? Like, did you, you know, were you on the floor? Were you, were you the taster? Did you say this needs more salt? I mean, was there any, anything like that? Well, I was really little, but I used to spend a lot of time there. And the job that they would let me do um, was to stand and help with the chip sorting. <laughs> oh, my so, gosh. Is that sizing because- like eggs or... Well, you know, it, basically the chips come down and there's like a chart and you're just looking for anything that doesn't seem quite right and you're removing, you know, green or burned or whatever. And um, I could never cook them because obviously I was too little and that was extremely dangerous. So I do appreciate their um, desire to keep me safe yes. in the factory. But I just, I mean, the smell of the, the potatoes cooking and, I mean, I just, I loved everything about it. There was no part of me that at any time felt, oh, God, I don't want to be in the food business. I just, I love the idea that, you know, you care so much about something that you create it, and then other people, you know, spend their hard-earned money at the grocery store to purchase what you make and bring it home and feed it to their families. It was just something, like, even as a child, I really loved. Um, I actually started my first company when I was 12. I made chocolate chip cookies with my best friend, and we sold them to one deli in our town, which I can't believe is technically legal, but yeah, we did. Maybe not so. today, but back then, sure. That's great. Right. You're, okay, so that entrepreneurial spirit burned bright. And they weren't carob chips, I assume. No, they were not. <laughs> they were chocolate. <laughs> so I, I know that your, your father and you worked together, and then your father very sadly passed away um, when your business was still very young. What, what effect did that have on you? How did that change the, the trajectory of um, your business and you? Well, uh, I think the, the one thing that, you know, just to give a tiny bit of background, so I started the company, I was pregnant, as you mentioned, in 2003, and I um, kind of got off the ground, things were starting, and then I was able to lure my father out of his well-earned retirement to come join me. And um, we had the opportunity to work side by side also with my husband, I might add. So I feel like uh, we have a little bit of a science experiment family business. <laughs> you get it both directions, right? The right. married into it and daughter of. Yeah. Um, so 
I worked side by side with my dad, you know, which I loved. And, you know, I, to this day, I still find myself asking, you know, what would Steve do in certain situations? And the business is doing well. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, we started with crackers. And that was, you know, it was very successful out of the gate. And we grew, you know, every year. And then in 2009, um, 2008, actually, my father was, late 2008, my father was diagnosed with a late-stage pancreatic cancer. And the business was still, it was doing okay. I mean, we were, you know, in the recession at that point and, you know, kind of the height of gluten-free as well. And we were very much uh, filled with gluten. (laughs) And, you know, his death really knocked the wind out of our sails. I mean, first of all, my father was an entrepreneur, and anybody who's an entrepreneur or lives with one or knows one knows that we, you know, we're we're very optimistic. We typically don't think bad things ever actually happen. And when that happened, it, you know, was completely unexpected. He was in great health. He was very young, and he died very quickly. So by early March of 2009, he had passed. Mm. And Terrible. You know, it was just, I mean, first of all, we were extremely close. We ran the business together. Um, You know, it was just, it was a personal devastating loss for, for me, my husband, my kids. And then the business was, again, we were doing okay. You know, it was the height of the recession. We grew that year, but very little. Um, you know, our crackers were, were doing good, as I mentioned, not great. Mm-hmm. Then about three weeks after he died, I got a letter from our bank using his death as a technical default on our loan. Oh, my gosh. And h- horrible. It, I mean, it, 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 I mean, first of all, compl- that was completely unexpected. But, you know, at the time, I'm sure everybody can think back to 2009. I mean, you know, uh, we were paying effectively nothing for a rate. I think they were looking for any way to get out of our loan, right. and you know, we just provided them with one. Um, unfortunately, despite our you know entrepreneurial background and and everything that that we had known going in, we did not have key man insurance, hmm. which is a mistake I will never make again. And good and advice for anyone was, listening to get key man insurance, apparently. Yeah, I mean, and and so I, you know, I was put in the situation of in 2009 with a business that was, again, doing good, not great, Mm -hmm. uh, with basically flat, you know, growth. I mean, we were up maybe 2% that year. Um, We had positive EBITDA, but we weren't making money. I had to replace a pretty significant loan because it was for a bunch of equipment. Wow. It was over $3 million. So how did you do that? You know, okay, so first I collected myself. I mean, I was still kind of reeling from the whole experience. And my husband and I sat down. We sat down with our whole team, and we were very honest with everybody um, because people were, you know, people had a lot of questions, and, uh, you know, the whole economy was making everybody very nervous. And, you know, I was very honest, and I said, you know, okay, we're not in a great spot here. I'm not going to sugarcoat it or lie to you. But, you know, I am 100% confident that we're going to figure this out. So, you know, I, I need you guys to all kind of stick with us through this, and, you know, I promise you we'll be stronger when we come out the other side. And, you know, remarkably, our entire staff, um, you know, believed in us enough that they, you know, they stuck with us through this. We didn't lose any people out of fear or, or who, you know, didn't have the appetite for the risk that we were about to kind of embark on. And I just, I mean, I think I talked to every bank probably in the country at, uh, during this time period. And it was through 
a chance meeting, actually. I was giving a talk at the Natural Products Expo, which is our, one of our big trade shows every year, and somebody came and asked me and said, have you heard of this um, bank called RSF Social Finance? And I hadn't. Wow. Um, <laughs> and it is, the RSF stands for Rudolf Steiner Foundation. It's a, it's a bank that effectively loans money. It's not a, it's not a typical bank, but it, they loan money and traditional debt to uh, socially responsible businesses and nonprofits. What a fantastic recommendation and find for you. Wow. And it, you must have been ready to just, well, keep going, but it must have just made it. Yeah, you know, I think that's better. one of the things that I think really defines me as an entrepreneur, though, is that at no point, and as I look back on this, I think, God, I was such an idiot, but I, I at no point during that year and during that time, did I ever contemplate for one second that we would not figure it out? Like there was no part of me, not even like a 2% part of my brain that felt we will not get out of this. That is fantastic. And I think it's delusional, but it's also <laughs> the way I truly felt. And, and since then, you've experienced tremendous growth. And I'm, I'm wondering, you uh, enhanced the product line, you went in the direction of tortillas. Can you talk about tortilla chips? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, that was actually part two of our two-part uh, plan to get ourselves out of this situation we were in. Step one was replace our loan, because obviously we weren't going to make it much further without that. And I want to also point out one of the things that I did not do at this juncture, which was sort of my pull-the-shoot um, plan, was raise more equity, get, you know, sell more equity. Because had I done that, I very, very likely would have lost control of the business. Right, that was a smart move. So I just, you know, that is, I mean, who you raise money from as an early entrepreneur really can make or break your entire trajectory. And so um, I just, I like to mention that because that is not a choice that I made at that time. And I really, truly believe it's why it's at least uh, more than 50% responsible for, you know, why we were able to make it through and why I'm still CEO, frankly. Um, so we, we found this bank and then... You know, we were talking about our product line. I mean, my husband and I tend to talk about the business. I mean, you might, our kids could probably tell you maybe 24 hours a day, <laughs> um, some, some number like that. And, you know, we were just talking about our product line. And um, one of our number one selling products at the time was a peanut butter sandwich cracker, which my youngest son has anaphylactic peanut allergies. I, I, you know, we, I was never, I mean, I, I felt a need with our crackers, but it was never something that I truly, truly felt passionate about. And... You know, we were just, we were asking ourselves, like, you know, we need that breakout hit. We need a product that really defines who we are as a brand and who we want to be. And we made all these sort of radical decisions. We actually had cookies that we discontinued at the time because it was something that, you know, we just didn't feel represented who we wanted to be. And it was a lot of revenue that we were walking away from. That's bold. We really felt like we needed to be more confident in our brand vision and, like, really make this company reflect us. And I think that was one of the things that was going on when my father was still alive, is that, you know, he and I are two extremely different people, and we had two very different visions for, you know, even though I started the company, you know, he was a strong entrepreneur with a strong opinion, just, just like I am. And, you know, we were never totally synced up about kind of what our product line should look like. So we made a lot of radical decisions. We discontinued our cookies, um, you know, and we said the one product 
that we loved as a family. I've been wanting to launch a tortilla chip since I tried to convince my dad unsuccessfully to do it back in, you know, 1985 at Cape Cod Potato Chips, um, where he reminded my name, their name is Cape Cod Potato Chips. And it was the one product that as a family we could not buy certified organic. And we really didn't feel like any of the natural tortillas that were out there at the time were filling our needs. They were, they were in, our, in my opinion and in the opinion of my family, they were just, there was too much going on in them. Um, they, they didn't have the, the flavor profile that we wanted. We just didn't think they were delicious enough. And they weren't certified organic. So given the fact that this is something, you know, we were just incredibly passionate about, it really, we really felt like it's who we should be as a company. Um, we made the decision to launch into tortilla chips, which I think if you had asked back then, you know, the, the brokers that we worked with and a, and a bunch of other people that kind of surrounded our business, um, you know, people really felt like we had an extraordinarily high uh, possibility of failure. Well, it seems now it's an incredibly crowded market. Uh, I imagine it was less crowded then, but why did they think that you were going to fail? Because even though it doesn't, it might not seem like a uh, like a, an enormous difference if you're not like deeply embedded in the snack business. But switching from crackers to I chips see. is as different as switching from shoes to lipstick. I mean, it's 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 just a it's a very different category within the supermarket, and it's it's a you know it's a much more competitive category. You know, people weren't sure our brand name could work in that aisle. Uh, you know, they weren't sure that we had what it takes to kind of figure out how to sell in that aisle. You know, I would say without my father, people felt had a, had a low degree of confidence in our ability to succeed there because he was the one with the snack aisle experience, not us. Um, so, you know, going in, I think we could have lost it all again as a result of this new decision. But it, I honestly felt like it's who we needed to be. I was passionate about it. I believed in it with, like, all of my heart. Then we started R&Ding. We actually, um, you know, hired somebody with a lot of tortilla chip experience to work with us. And we did, and I don't think this is an exaggeration. Any, um, I'd have to double check, but I think it was, like, a thousand variations of tortilla chips. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was an enormous amount of R&D before we found the formula for our multigrain tortilla chip that we launched with. That's uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of tortilla chips. I mean, it's a, that's a slight exaggeration, but it really—I mean—it was an enormous amount of, of just tiny tweaks and little changes, and you know, switching out a tiny bit of the formula. And um, and now and now you've proven those uh, those naysayers or the skeptics, maybe not naysayers. You've proved them wrong. Uh, I just want to ask one uh, other question before we conclude, and that's—I know that you you had great men- mentoring. Uh, from your family at the very least. And I understand that you're quite, the, you're quite committed to the notion of mentoring and that you talk to somewhere around, you know, a hundred different people who, are, who come to you for counsel a year, which seems like an extraordinary number to me. I'm wondering what the commonality is in those conversations. What are people searching for? And what kind of advice are you able to give them? Well, I feel so indebted to everybody that helped me, and I, you know, I realize that this is a small industry where, you know, we all have a responsibility to help each other. Because if someone can avoid one of the horrible mistakes I made, um, you know, I would feel 
horrible if I didn't share that information with them. But I find it is very, very different what people need. And I have kind of come to the conclusion that very often someone's ability to figure out their own problem is directly connected with them asking the right question. And almost always when people ask me the right question, they already know the answer. Um, they're That's very just wise. looking for a little bit of reassurance of that answer. Well, with that, um, I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Nicole, on Speaking Broadly. And I'm looking forward to trying your very newest product, which is the, the Dipper. So and until next time, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And now we're going to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, um, I will be talking to Katie Bell, the woman who's worked at restaurants from Dan Barber's Blue Hill to Danny Meyer's Untitled at the Whitney. Stay with us. We'll be back. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. My show is about people, life, and food. Tune in on Wednesdays at 1 o'clock to hear me talk with people from all walks of life. I interview artists, writers, healers, chefs, and much more. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Your donations help keep us operating. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I am thrilled to have Katie Bell with me today in the studio. Katie's currently the general manager of Agarn. I was... Nobody can get it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was happy to learn that that name is uh, Danish. Danish. Yeah. And um, in Danish, it doesn't sound anything like it sounds like in English, so we're butchering it no matter how exactly. we say it. So that's good. <laughs> um, so it's a Scandinavian restaurant that was created by the co-founder of Noma. His name is Klaus Meyer. And the restaurant is in Grand Central. But Katie has a long history in the restaurant business. And we're going to hear a little bit about her past and current lives. When I look at the list of restaurants that you've worked for, which includes uh, Dan Barber at Blue Hill, so Klaus Meyer right now, um, Mike Anthony and Danny Meyer at 
Untitled, uh, Thomas Keller at Per Se, Ben Ford at Ford's um, Filling Station. You've worked for Iconoclasts, and you've worked for people with very, very strong visions. I'm wondering, what is it that you look for in a job and so that you end up at these extraordinary places? I think... Um I think I really look for a, a place that has a, a bit of a, a backbone and a, a north star. Some, you know, restaurants and, you know, as as you went through those me- restaurants, mentioning the the chefs at each one, those aren't, you know, those are chefs that are that are holding a place in the restaurant bigger than just cooking. You know, they they really all of those chefs lead the the heart and soul of those restaurants. All of those chefs are very involved in the dining room experience and the guest experience and. Um, but aren't they? I, I think what interests me is each one of them actually is involved in something much bigger than the dining and the guests. So for Klaus Meyer, um, he has a social mission. Um, Danny Meyer has a hospitality mission. Dan Barber has a waste mission and a yeah. farm mission and a vision. So are you attracted to the mission vision and how does that inform uh, the dining room experience? Definitely. Um, and I think, you know, uh, working at Blue Hill, the the conversation and that conversation, it's a conversation with the guests, but it's bigger than that. It's a conversation that you're having with the the staff to have with the guests is is deeper. It has roots, and you're say, you know you're you're speaking about producers. That's a, a hugely important thing to me, and then uh, you know to to all of the the restaurants that I've worked with that that idea of sourcing and having this really strong connection and having this kind of. Uh, responsibility of bringing, you know, you put all of this energy into growing this carrot or making this wine or raising this lamb, and we are taking on that responsibility and making sure that the guest isn't just kind of mindlessly eating that while also, you know... While also mindlessly eating exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> which, was, which was a huge thing that we, we spoke about constantly at Blue Hill was this idea of we never want to preach. We don't want you... You're not coming to, to, to dinner to, to hear, you know we want to support your experience. And if your experience is someone's birthday, we don't want to be interjecting, you know, facts about the bricks content of the carrots and, you know, <laughs> things like that. We want, we want to support that, that family feeling and that experience at the table. So it's, it's, a, it's very much a balance, but I think it all, it all starts with this level of education and awareness and having the staff that that's right there when somebody says, this is the best carrot or this is the, the best lamb I've ever had, having that kind of, that, that, that texture to add to it, but also that that grace to, to add it in the right way that that helps the guests to understand how much thought went into the experience of the restaurant. So I think you're saying that basically you, you're working with these these chefs who have the strong opinions. They impart to you um, as a general manager, and then you to the servers the deep knowledge of what goes into each one of those dishes, so that people can um, so that your team can share that with the guests, but not in an onerous kind of, kind of a way. Definitely. Uh, and what about the style of working with the chefs? Is it, you know, working with a Dan Barber must be very different from working with a Klaus Meyer. How did, how are those personalities different? Uh, I mean, yes, I, I, the, those are two totally vastly different, but also I think in, in some ways very similar. Dan was the one that introduced me to Klaus, um, for, for this position. Um, but I, you know, I think again, work, working with the chef and working with, with Dan for so long, um, when, when you work with somebody, be it a chef or anybody who has a strong vision and just a strong kind of, as I said, like North star in general, 
you work with someone long enough and you kind of know how they feel. You know, I, I think it didn't take too long because Dan and his brother David are so clear in what's important to them. And, and that is, that is made so clear to everyone that, that you know what we believe in and you know, like kind of like as a company, this is what Blue Hill would do in this situation. And I think it, it really does go all the way down through the staff where, where I had such trust in the staff standing at the table because they knew what was important. You know, they, they weren't just kind of saying like, Oh, you know, chef would recommend this. It was, it was an understanding of, of how things were grown and how, you know, how we believed in the process happening. So let's talk a little bit about the wasted pop-up because I know that you worked, um, you worked hard on that. And then um, Dan (laughs) just did one in London. Yeah. What was it like getting all those scraps in? And was there any, um, feeling like this stuff is Gross! How are we actually going to make this into delicious food? It was incredible. It was one of the the craziest experiences of my life, um, and it was actually very uh, poetic because it was the last month I was at Blue Hill. So we literally finished the pop up. For anybody who doesn't know, we completely changed the dining room. I mean, took out tables, took out everything, redid the walls, and so we we flipped the dining room. And I kind of said thank you and 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 headed out. So it was it was a really interesting experience, but. Um, I think it, it was it was cool on many levels. It was fascinating to see the guests' reaction, um, and it was it was really interesting to see the staff's reaction because we were this fine dining restaurant, and we had these kind of very strong understandings of how we did things, and then everything was turned on its head, and we were this like casual kind of crazy cafe. <laughs> um, we had lines literally all the way down um, down the street, and and that is like such an uncomfortable thing for a restaurant where the staff has been trained that nobody should wait for their table. And it was so sweet to see the staff just being like, I don't know what to do. I can't, <laughs> I, I can't bring them in. They're waiting. They want to rain. I remember a couple nights it was like raining and, and it was just so lovely to see the staff coming to me and saying, you know, I just filled up 30 cups of tea. I'm going to take them out to everybody, you know, and then, and then the, the guest chefs got in on it. So we had like Grant Ackett's like walking down the, the road, handing out pieces of bread and things like that. It was, yeah, it was, it was really lovely to see that what we had kind of come together and, and, and taught about hospitality and things like that, that, that the staff was so smart to be able to take that and just go, okay, this is a totally different situation, but I can translate that and we can still kind of execute it. And what about the food? Because, you know, they're taking food out that they're saying like, yes, this is pulp that was about to be tossed and this would have been in a, you know, a container to go to the garbage. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was great. And again, it was, it was just, you know, it was a lesson in kind of education of saying like, how do you explain this in a way that isn't gross? Gross was the word that always came up because <laughs> when you're talking about things that are like technically waste, you know, so how do you explain this in a waste? Like what in specific, a way, give me one specific well, example. One, I mean, there's, there's so many, but one of the ones that I loved was, um, there's a beautiful, very old, um, like Italian pasta shop, maybe over on Bleecker. Um, and Dan knew the woman from living in the neighborhood and, and had kind of been speaking to them. And there's, and I don't know the Italian name, but there's actually a dish. He found out that they would throw away all the scraps of pasta that were left in the machine when they switched flavors. So that when they went from, you know, whole wheat to, to spinach, there'd be little scraps of green and they'd have to throw them out. And so got that and did this pasta dish. And it's, you know, it's beautiful pasta and it would be this like really colorful bowl and then uh, apparently and this was like a lesson that came up over and over again was that things that we were like oh my god we found this old you know this is being thrown away we'll take it we'll use it and then it turns out because so much of 
fine dining and just cuisine is based on like peasant cuisine and it's based on you know it's the origins of foie gras like it, it's based on on people using everything of animals so there is apparently an older Italian dish which is called like the scraps and it's just you know it's like the pieces so um, and then and then you're actually not inventing something new you're like exactly oh, Italians you know like exactly. back in the 1300s they really exactly understood this yeah but I think when we had those kind of those stories and those connections too to because you know it, it, Dan has these amazing connections with all these people so they were coming to him saying it hurts my heart every day that this is being wasted and so the stories were very sweet and very personal it wasn't like and then we went to the trash can you know it was <laughs> it was these wonderful stories about fish purveyors saying nobody will buy the heads but it's beautiful meat. It's what I cook for my family. Things like that, and so it was. It was really cool. Actually, I loved the um, the fish bone fries. Like they're you know crunchy and crispy, and like why doesn't everybody make those? Exactly. I, Which I think I, I I've now seen uh, definitely like certain pieces from the Wasted Project go out into the universe, and I'll kind of see something and be like, ah, oh. you must have come exactly, by. <laughs> exactly. Oh, or and also being like, man, your costing must be great. Like I know how cheap that is. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Smart move. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Agarin a little bit because that's your your current position, yeah. and you're in an unusual position right now because you had a horrible flood. Yeah. I mistakenly thought it was it happened during the night, but no, it happened during lunch service. Can you tell me like what happened? What what was it like that day? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, the end of March, uh, March 28th, it was a Tuesday, and it was um, it was my first day off in a really long stretch. And so, yeah, it, it's the but uh, it's so, the curse of the day off. <laughs> exactly. Never take a day off. I, I kind of feel nothing that bad way. Will ever I feel very, I feel yeah. very yeah. It's better to just always be there. Um, but our, our daytime major D called me, and I was actually on the train heading into the city, and he was like humming and hawing, and he was like, "There's a leak in the dining room," and. We're in Grand Central, which is, you know, quite an old building. And so things like this had happened before. And I kind of was like, okay, you know, is it the same spot where it's happened before? And he's like, no, no, no. And I was like, okay, have one of the managers call me. And so I I took the train and I I diverted. So I was heading towards Grand Central if I needed to come in. And Brittany, the manager, called me and she just said, started going on. And I said, do I need to come in? She goes, KB, you need to come in. And I walked in um, as the emergency lights were were shutting on um, or were turning on and um, I've just, uh, you know, was it, the it, room full of people? The and at that point, all the guests had been very politely escorted out. Um, there's very, it took the guests a while to realize that we we hadn't installed like a water feature. I mean, it, literally, <laughs> there there was belief that like this was maybe something planned or something. I mean, there was water pouring, and um, so all the guests were you know given cards and and told to you know give us a call and we'd take care of them the next time. Um, I, I love the story about um, you know not accepting. The, yeah, we just, yeah. Uh, Brittany, one of our managers, who just has has the biggest heart and is the sweetest thing, and and the the maitre d told me the real moment he realized it was serious was a guest was trying to give her his coat, and and Brittany is is just a yes person, and she was you know there's literally water pouring down behind this guy's. Um, behind this guy's head and he just keeps trying to hand her the coat and finally Britain turns and looks him in the eyes and goes I will not take your coat right now sir <laughs> and, and the maitre d just said and then I knew it was serious <laughs> although the water pouring the water pour, yeah, yeah but it's, it, it goes to show you how much people will overlook um, but yeah so, so when I got there um, it was just uh, I like get a little verklempt it was, it was just the most amazing display of ownership I've ever seen in my life. Um, our, our AM team, 
our breakfast and lunch team, our morning team was there at that point already. I'm like literally getting goosebumps thinking about this. It was just, I've never seen anything like it. They were soaked to the bone and they were just like moving. Like I've never seen anyone move before and just totally of their own. It was, it was so obvious it was their baby. And they were like, we need to do whatever we can do. And they were just moving from place to place. We so walked, what were they doing? Moving chairs? Uh, moving, moving chairs, moving, I mean, you know, Where did they go? This is, uh, so everything went out into the food hall and then they wiped everything down and then everything went into the basement. And it was just this like incredible, um, pack mentality. They just knew what to do next. And it was just, as soon as all the tables and chairs were out, it was like, there was water pouring down. I we, we all joked that it looked like Vegas. There was just water <laughs> pouring down behind all the spirits bottles on the bar. Oh. And they're just pulling all the bottles up. And then um, one of our porters was like, because we have these <laughs> stunning um, Danish white oak floors oh, with these yeah. incredibly thick boards. And, you know, I've spent literally the last 365, we were like a week away from our one year anniversary. I've spent like the last year, like if somebody's walking with a glass and like spills a little splash of wine, I, they would like see my eyes from across the room. <laughs> being like you get a towel right now and and these floors are just covered in water and so all of our guys are just like squeegeeing them and just it was just really incredible and and I remember like as I got there we all went upstairs and we hadn't gone into the wine room yet and the wine room was just in like you know inches of, of standing water and um Ashley one of our girls just kind of like pushed past me and she goes I need tape I need tarps and she just starts like taping up all the bottles it was just it was it was incredible it really it what does it mean she was taping the bottles? She was like taping because the water was kind of coming down the center of the room. So she was taping oh. off so the water wouldn't get to the labels. And oh. it was it was just like such incredible. Like it wasn't like, Katie, what should we do? It was like, you know, we can figure this out. Like, let's keep going. Everyone was just like looking for the next thing to do. It was incredible. And they, they worked very hard. So um, the the water came from a construction site above oh. us, which many can figure out what that is. Um, but uh, they had gone into the sprinkler system. And because they had thought the sprinkler system was off, it took an hour and a half to shut off the water. So it wasn't like a flood of water and then cleaning up. It was an hour and a half of it pouring through our ceiling. And then, you know, yeah, so... It was quite an experience. <laughs> and then it's, and it's been shut since. So um, yeah. I know it closed the um, the next day. But there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes what tests the mettle of a manager is those crises and then the aftermath. So what have you been doing to either motivate the team or to move people forward or even yourself yeah. during this time when you don't have a restaurant I mean you probably have been working non-stop yeah for years. um I mean I I I think the biggest thing um so right afterwards the the first issue was was the reservations and then and then quickly after that the staff because um they're paid hourly and and so some of them had you know we we have a, a pretty great benefits program but like you know um paid time off only gets you so far and so um, I was really floored by the the community and the way that the community came together. Um, USHG, uh, especially, just so the the hospitality industry. Yeah. So Union Square Hospitality. Yeah. Group. Oh yeah, and and I mean, and and all the restaurants. It was just it was incredible to have you know, and and as I said, it was first the reservations and people were were just like you know six top on Friday night, that's going to be tight, but we will figure out a place to find them and, and we will take care of them on your behalf. And, you know, people were pouring champagne for our guests and, and just like really, yeah, it was, it was just, it was incredible. And, and it was so quick that the, the reservations managers came and they said, tell us what we can do. Tell us how we can help, you know, just email me, you know, like it was, it was really amazing. And then that is incredible. So 
people, so your guests were taking care of at other restaurants. That's amazing. It's, it was, it was incredible. And we were getting emails, you know, from the guests saying like, you know, the modern did such an amazing job. The nomad, you know, they, they, they made such a special point of saying that they, you know, they wanted to take care of us. It was just, it was, it was really special and, and such a, such a testament to the community in the city. Um, and then right after that, um, we needed to start finding jobs for the staff, um, temporary jobs and, and all of the restaurants, um, just opened up their arms and, you know, it was just really incredible. And, and to take on temporary staff is not like a light thing, you know, like everyone is kind of like, well, everyone needs staff, but you know, it, it means a lot to take somebody on with the knowledge that you, you will be probably hopefully giving them back at some point, you know, and training somebody. And, and it was just the, the way that they took them on, the way that they took care of our team, the way that they introduced them, it was, it was Really impressive. So you now have a team that's all over New York. Yeah. And then uh, you'll open sometime, and you're hoping to get them back. Hoping. We'll see. <laughs> I'm, I'm also, you know, I I really believe in the life path of my team and stuff. So I, I know that certain people have found, you know, great opportunities that they wouldn't have found otherwise, and that this was a good, you know, it was an accidental push for them to go somewhere else and learn something else. It's been cool to see people, um, and we really pushed people, too, to learn different things. You know, we had servers learning to cook, and we had, you know, we've, one great. of our, yeah, one of our bartenders has been working at um, one of the distilleries learning to make, like, one of the gins that's one of our house gins, and, like, things like that, that, you know, I, I was kind of like, okay, if this was me, this is how I would approach this. I was kind of thinking back to, um, per se does closure twice a year and they really push you to to use that time which is um which is amazing and like I went and brewed during one of the things and I was like okay guys you don't get these kind of breaks a lot like use your management team use our contacts go go learn something you know and then come back (laughs) and then come back please (laughs) and tell us about it so you are the general manager and I know from talking to people in the business that there are servers who never want to grow up to be general managers because it uh you get paid less, the hours are crushing, and the responsibilities are big. What do you think about being a general manager? <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I think there aren't, you know, th- this is an industry still in, in a transition phase right now where, where we are learning what we are. And I, I think, you know, you and I spoke about this earlier, but there, there has been a transition. I remember when I started at Per Se and me- meeting these kids that were kids and they were like straight out of CIA and they were like, this is all I wanted to do. I wanted to work at, you know, and they have these clear career paths and that's newer for us. You know, we're, we're, we're not that far from removed from like, you know, the kitchen confidential days kind of. And, and so having staff come in with these really clear career paths is, is amazing. And it, it's such a, a, a greater challenge and a greater responsibility to, to keep them happy and to keep them challenged and to keep them inspired. Um, and, and something that's really important to me, and especially this last year at Agern is, is creating, first of all, it, it started with just wanting to like make, you know, I, I had noticed from, from the last number of years and especially doing two openings in a row, working 80, hundred hour weeks that my staff would see that. And they would kind of be like, that doesn't look fun. You know, <laughs> like I love Katie, but that doesn't look fun. Right. And I don't want to be Katie. <laughs> exactly. And I'm so glad you're Katie. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, the, the, it's a, it's a Thomas Keller saying that like, you know, the way that you do your job great is to look and, you know, have some, you need somebody to replace you. If you hang on to your job, then, then you're in your place forever and you never grow you need to have that that confidence to want somebody to replace you and for somebody to want to replace you what you do has to look great you know appealing (laughs) and so so and and I think that also couples with with me just growing up a bit and and realizing that 
that I do want a little bit more balance, you know, than, than I have wanted for the last, you know, 10 years of kind of running really hard. And so and it's, it's also hard to, you know, one lives to be indispensable yeah, in some way and exactly. to be, to plan to not be indispensable. So to plan for everything to be okay without you, there's like a little part of you that's like, that kind of sucks. Completely, completely. <laughs> and I, you know, I think there's a saying like that about chefs where it's like, you have to build a kitchen that runs without you because if it runs with you, you're not truly great. You're a great cook. You need to be a great chef and a great chef can have two restaurants and you can have beautiful meals at both of them while he's on the beach somewhere or something, you know, like, and, and so I think that's been a huge focus of this last year for me is, is for myself and for my management team, really pushing us to, to create structures that, that let us be us and let us, you know, take vacations and, you know, pursue other pieces that make us stronger when we're there. Um, you know, running is insanely important for me and it's, it's been, it's taken a long time for me to really put that focus there. But when I'm running, I'm a better leader. I'm like a better person to talk to. I'm a, you know, I'm happier. I'm more creative. I'm smarter, all those kind of things. So, you know, creating those opportunities for people to be able to do that. I have to know if that's your TM moment, because <laughs> I loved learning that you moved to Iowa specifically so that you could go to a TM grade school, yeah. which transcendental meditation. So I, I was very much a, um, uh, resonating with Nicole talking about caravan <laughs> and uh, that is, You've that, had your is fair share. that is my 100% I'm, I'm a hippie at heart um, but yeah I, I definitely think that is that is a part of that you know for me I, I always say I have two meditations meditation and running and, and those are the, the two things that um, the best times in my life are the times when I'm, I'm following those two practices and the worst times in my life when I'm like really strung out, I suddenly realize I haven't run in two months and I haven't meditated in two months. Like, you know, I'm sorry to hear that it takes you two months to realize <laughs> know, that. Oh, oh, it, it definitely does. I won't be the first to admit that, but, but it really, you know, it syncs up like that. And I think it is again, like taking that time to, to create the space to, to be the best you, you know, and sometimes we, you know, the, the, the people of the hospitality profession are service people. And, and so we sometimes give and give and give to the point where we run ragged. And, and I think it, it generally takes, and that's, that's everyone. That's the dining room. That's the kitchen. It generally takes somebody else pointing out and saying like, you know, you, you need to like take a little bit, you know, and, and be, Was you there a moment? Did, did somebody actually say to you, I think you need to like hold back a little. Yeah. I mean, in, in lots of ways. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest with you. People tell me that all the time. <laughs> I don't know if it necessarily helps. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely, um, have had a lot of moments where, and, and it's definitely something I still focus on. I am, the, I'm a little bit of a control freak. I try to say that in a positive and a negative way. Um, I, I know how I like things and, and I like to be involved in things. And, you know, it's, it's very hard for me if we have events seven days a week, I want to be at every event because I want to make sure it's perfect and I want to be a part of it. And it's not that I don't trust my team. It's that, you know, it, it is that instinct to just to be there and to help. And it doesn't help in the end, you know? And so, so I think it's, it's, it's definitely, and I, and I have an amazing team, both with me and with each other mm -hmm. that are very good at saying, I've got this, you go home. Or, you know what? Saturday's really well set up. I don't think we need you to come in, you know, and, and they, they You're getting self bossed by your team. Yeah. Oh, completely, <laughs> completely. And, and, and through each other, you know, we've really tried to create this culture where it, it's not about, you know, like who's there the longest it's about working smarter, you know, and it's about us saying like, let's take care of each other. Let's take care of ourselves. You know, we are the best when we're all, you know, in good forms of ourselves. <laughs> 
someday you will listen to all these, <laughs> all the voices, and you will find more time and space for yourself. Though yeah. it sounds like you've you've been able to, and plus you've had an enforced break. Yes. So maybe you'll absorb all of that and take some of that forward. Yeah. Um, speaking of forward, on speaking broadly, I like to pay it forward to amazing women and I wonder if there's an amazing woman that you'd like to woman or women who you or whom you'd like to nominate to the Hall of Dames. So. Oh my god, how long do you have? <laughs> um, okay, can I do a couple? Sure. Okay. Um, I will start with I'll go quickly. Grace Ann Jordan is one of the most amazing humans on the face of the earth and somebody I definitely like look to as as inspiration and <laughs> and Grace and yeah. is I actually just sat next to her at the welcome conference. Aww. Tell us what she's doing now and why. Um, so she was the director of operations for the whole um, craft group, and she's now working on a new project that I don't know the the full details of, um, but she seems really happy. <laughs> um, and then, okay, uh, Suzanne Cups, the um, executive chef of Untitled, is one of the smartest people and most graceful people and just, like, an incredible leader. Um, I love her very, very dearly. Um, who else? Uh, oh, I, I was really... Um, inspired by the the piece that Nicole said about mentoring. Um, and so two people that I think, because she was talking about, about asking great questions when mentors, and I think that relationship is really important. And I, I personally have had a lot of people come to me in not the right way, where they kind of come and say, what? what to, you know, like basically just what question mark. And (laughs) it's hard to answer that, but, but when people come with great questions, it's, it's really wonderful. And I think that comes from both sides of that relationship. But, um, Gabrielle Hamilton and then Amanda Hesser are two people who have, um, kind of helped me on, on my writing side of my career in a really incredible way. And, and just were both such strong, clear, succinct, um, voices. So Gabrielle Hamilton, the, um, chef, owner of prune and an, an incredible writer, writer. <laughs> yeah um and amanda hasser who founded uh food 52 yeah also a g- really great writer and yeah. editor yeah and just amazing humans and then last one Lindsay collins who uh kind of connected us um from fnb radio um in charleston um another just amazing human but also great connector of people and i think that's so important in our industry and especially among women in our industry because we can we can be a little bit alone wolves and it's really amazing when they bring people together like that right Lindsay's creating a pack Lindsay this is a shout out to you <laughs> thank you for um, love you <laughs> thank you I wanted to thank all of you for listening that wraps up today's speaking broadly I just want to thank my amazing engineer David Tatashore um, my special window guest Mary Solomon <laughs> and um all of you for listening. Come back next week for more great insights from amazing women and beyond. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.